0: So good morning and welcome as we gather as uh, the Lord's people here. Where our call to worship this morning is from the prophet Hosea. So hear these words uh, as we enter into worship and prepare uh, to sing our songs of praise. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And let's pray. O God, you alone are God. We indeed acclaim you as uh, the one and only, uh, the God who was there before anything else was. And we claim you as the God who is love. Um, you are all that love is. It was a community of perfect love. And before the beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit, love flowing back and forth between you uh, in this community of love, of, um, of fellowship together. And you have created this world as an expression of your love, to, be, to receive your love and have created uh, humanity on it to be the special objects of your love. So we thank you for your love you've expressed in this world that you have made and in human beings that you've made in your image, what glory you confer upon us in how you have made us. Uh, You've made us capable of yourself, of being in relationship to you, of knowing you, uh, of being the ones in whom you are at work. And we thank you that your love for this world uh, continued despite all that uh, humanity did and that you showed your great love and sending your your beloved into this world to enter into our human story, to become like us, to walk this earth, and um, even to shine light into this dark world, uh, even in the face of rejection, and that the Lord Jesus was faithful all the way to the cross and uh, died there in our place. We thank you that you've raised him from the dead and uh, have inaugurated a new life and that uh, we can now be the participants in that when we were in Christ Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, that you have expressed your love for this world in sending Jesus into this world, that we might have life and have it abundantly and eternally. And we thank you that you've brought us into a new community of love with one another and with you as the church of Jesus Christ, and uh, which we love one another and care for one another as a family of brothers and sisters together. So thank you for this community that you've created around the world throughout time and for our community specifically here. Uh, Yet, Lord, as we look around the world, there is so much that is not right, and uh, our hearts continue to ache for Ukraine as it continues to endure this uh, tremendous battering from Russia. And I pray that you would sustain that people. Um, Pray for um, all the people of Ukraine. that um, You would have mercy, uh, and that you would act to restrain evil. Pray particularly for uh, all the Christians there There's a strong church in Ukraine that you would sustain them, enable them in the face of such great evil to continue to have hope and to do good, and that your word would spread, your love would spread, and pray for all those around the world who are seeking to minister into that terrible, terrible situation. Um, that, uh, that good would ultimately come of this. And Father, we um, pray for all the, uh, the refugees that are uh, scattering throughout uh, Europe and the world who have lost everything, that uh, they would uh, find comfort and hope and love expressed by many who are reaching out to them. We pray for refugees who are landing in our own midst, I think particularly of the Afghan refugees arriving here Uh, in the Bay Area, in California, in abundance, and for those who are reaching out to them. And uh, you have brought so much of the world here, and may they find life uh, as they um, live here and make a new home. Father, we thank you for the life that we have Uh, in Christ. We thank you for uh, forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the prospect of life eternal. We thank you for the life that you give us now and help us so to love you and to love one another that we might flourish. Father, we thank you for all your good gifts to us and the life you give us in Jesus Christ. Amen. So I hear the word of the Lord. Don't let foreigners who can themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. For this is what the Lord says. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too, besides my people, Israel." A wonderful word, the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together as we come to God's scripture. Almighty Father, whose will it is to restore all things in your beloved Son, the King of all, govern the hearts and minds of those in authority to bring the families of the nations, divided and torn apart by the ravages of sin, to be subject to your just and gentle rule, who lives forever in the unity of the Holy Spirit, for God now and forevermore, amen. Well, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the last several weeks, Bernard Bell has given us the broad sweep of God's kingdom in heaven through Daniel's apocalyptic visions, ravenous beasts, destructive empires that rise and fall under God's sovereign hand. God's timing was impeccable. As Bernard's masterful teaching gave us a heavenly perspective to process the demonic destruction and horror of Vladimir Putin's has inflicted on the people of Ukraine. Each week I found myself coming to church grieving and disoriented from the week's events. But through the scriptures, I was strangely comforted and anchored in the Lord who is sovereign, just and good. I'm not sure I know anybody that could have pulled off what Bernard did, God bless him. And for the next four weeks, we'll turn our attention to the book of Ruth, examining how God's kingdom comes to earth in an age of moral deterioration, political disaster, civil war that characterized the book of Judges. Judges spells out in gruesome details the evil that is unleashed when every man does what is right in his own eyes. And the book closes with a double epilogue that spots like the corrupt priests of the tribe of Levi as the source of Israel's descent into the darkest depravity possible. Sexual assault of a priest concubine from Bethlehem sparks a civil war, wholesale killing and mass kidnapping of women to provide wives for the tribe of Benjamin for fear that it would be cut off without progeny. During that 400-year period, one wonders, where was the kingdom of heaven manifest on earth? Well, the answer comes in the book of Ruth, and from the world of violence, sensuality, and depraved demagogues, we turn to the idyllic story set in the pastoral landscape of Bethlehem. And the very name Bethlehem, which would have been tainted like Auschwitz at this time, is gonna be utterly transformed into something beautiful. In this story, all the characters are good. There are no bad people. There is mutual respect between worker and employer. People recognize where God is at work and bless one another in response. In Ruth, every prayer is answered, and every blessing secured. And through the most unlikely instruments, a family, a community, and a nation are remarkably transformed and given a future hope that will outlast time. Reflecting on our times, Ellen Davis observes, like the Israelites in the time of judges, we are worn down and worn out by great events on a national and international scale. And so perhaps the teaching of this book of Ruth is especially apt now. According to rabbinic tradition, the book of Ruth was written for one purpose only, to teach how great is the reward of those who do deeds of chesed, my favorite Hebrew word. (laughs) It takes 17 English words to cover the range of this beautiful word. Hesed demonstrates how human relationships characterized by mutual faithfulness so seas of hope in the midst of desperate situations, the exact opposite trajectory of the book of Judges. So what is hesed? Well, it gets translated loving kindness, but that doesn't do it, or loyal love, or enduring love. Walk Bruce Walkie says, unfailing love to the helpless. It is based on a covenant relationship expressive of a deep abiding loyalty and commitment between parties. It's the very thing that builds communities together. Hesed is motivated by compassion for the helpless whose lives are in dire straits and are not able to help themselves. So what's needed is just not some whim or request, it's life and death. It is a voluntary act of extraordinary mercy or generosity going beyond the call of duty. No sanction can really force it. And it demonstrates the incalculable risk and joy of a covenant relationship. Micah sums it up as the very heart of spirituality when he says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love Hesed, and walk humbly before your God. Well, what the Torah and the prophets command, the book of Ruth is gonna demonstrate in living color. So I get four weeks to tell you how beautiful this word is. And my prayer is that you'll be captivated by Hesed, you'll be thrilled by it, and it will possess you to experience a love that brings heaven to earth in the most darkest of circumstances. So if we turn to chapter one, the chapter has three main parts. In the first part, the narrator recounts the family's migration to Moab in face of a famine. In the second and the longest section on the road back to Bethlehem, we have three very passionate exchanges of dialogue that forge the meaning of covenantal love and family bonds in very tense and intimate conversations. And then finally, the transformed family arrives and is received a reception in Bethlehem. So verse one, <clears throat> In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife with his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Well, during the bloody and dark days when the war roads ruled, the Lord of hosts disciplined his people by sending oppressors who plundered their grain and by drought that withered their grain. And when Ruth opens, that's what we have is a famine from a drought in Bethlehem. And a man migrates with his family across the Jordan to the high plains of Moab, which ironically seems more promising than the promised land. And it's also ironic because Bethlehem means the house of bread. So in the house of bread, there's no bread. And Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, which is ironic because my God is king is seeking bread outside the land of promise and in Moab of all places. The names of her sons, Machlon and, Mil- and Hylion, which mean sterile and spent, also hint at an ominous reversal in their fortunes. And Naomi's name, My Pleasantness, strikes a very dissonant key in this situation. Ellen Davis, who I found to be one of the best commentators on this book, along with two other women, I figure if you're gonna study a book about women, you might as well go to the best, so you go to women authors. They've been phenomenal. She writes, living as sojourners in Moab, a place that from an Israelite perspective was definitely on the wrong side of the tracks, that is the wrong side of the Jordan, The Israelites told an unflattering story that the Moabites were descended from the accessuous union of Lot and his daughter, which followed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In more recent memory on the verge of entering the promised land, the Israelites poured after Moabite women and made sacrifices to their God, Baal Peor, with disastrous consequences. In short, to the ancient Israelite mind, Moab, represented the quintessential acts of perversion and godlessness. Well, in verse one, we're told that Elimelech had intended for his family to just sojourn there temporarily as refugees. But in verse two, we discover that they were there, meaning they were settled, having left behind all their ancestral ties as Ephrathites. Verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they took for themselves wives, Moabites. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In Limlech's search for life, Moab became a graveyard of death. In five short verses, death wipes all the men off the stage without one verse of dialogue. Naomi's husband dies, leaving her alone on foreign soil with her two boys. When the boys grow up, they take Moabite wives and act expressly forbidden in the Torah And after 10 years of childless marriages, they died like their father, leaving Naomi desperately alone. This is a family history under a curse. The deaths of Maclone and Kilian bereaved Naomi of her children, wiped out her life's work as a woman, and brought the curtain down with a merciless thud on the future. When they buried Naomi's sons, they were essentially burying Naomi too. Now these three surviving widows, especially Naomi, are left in desperate need of chesed, unfailing love to the helpless. The daughters can remarry, they can have sons, but Naomi represents herself as too old to have a son. Moreover, without an heir, Elimelech's household will lose its inheritance and social immortality in Israel. Well, somehow in the midst of all this, word reaches Naomi that God has come to the aid of his people and given them food. The famine in Bethlehem was over by God's providential hand, verse six. Then she arose, she and her daughters-in-law, and returned from the fields of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. So she set off from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Well, until now, Naomi has been portrayed passively. She was left, but now ignited by the news of God's hessed. She becomes the subject of a series of active verbs that have a similar impact on her daughter's-in-law. Notice, she arose, she turned back, she went out and they walked. Return is found 12 times. It's the theme word of the chapter, along with go or, and walk, which occurs 10 times. So this is a journey of family restoration. Although Naomi may be despairing, she nonetheless boldly undertakes the journey that will ultimately restore her joy. But as soon as they set out on the road, she seems to have second thoughts about all three returning. Verse eight. Naomi said to her daughter's-in-law, go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly, that's the word hesed, show hesed with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Now this is the first spoken dialogue in the book. And its affectionate tone, rhetorical beauty and spiritual grace give evidence of the power of hesed love to renew forsaken hope. Naomi's request that her daughters-in-law return to their mother's house is unusual, it's usually the father's house, but it may be that her, in her impoverished and vulnerable condition, she no longer feels adequate to fulfill her mother's, her mother's role for them, and that's a role she's played for 10 years. In the absence of her motherly care, she commends Ruth and Orpah to God's hessed love for them. And in so doing, Naomi is graciously freeing her daughters of law of any ongoing commitment to her. Another dimension of Hesed. Even more striking is that their kindness is not so much the reason why God should act, rather it's the standard of behavior that Naomi calls upon God to emulate. So here's God who is totally hesed loving and forgiving and gracious and they call upon him to emulate what the daughters have done. That's quite a compliment for these foreign women. And if you find that shocking, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan rings the same bell. That is, those outside the circle of faith, even our enemies, may be better examples of Hesed love than those within. You ever find that discovery? <laughs> I think if you look at some cultures in the Middle East, Muslim cultures, they have a lot more Hesed in their families than we do in America. We can learn a lot from other cultures. Now we're not told what these acts of kindness were, but if you consider what hesed means, unfailing love for the helpless, who are in dire circumstances, I suspect that Ruth welcomed Naomi into her home after she became a widow and cared for her needs for 10 years. The bond was further strengthened when Ruth suffered the same fate as her mother-in-law and she became a widow. Well, after commending them to the Lord's chesed love, Naomi petitions God that her daughters-in-law would find rest and security in the context of a new marriage. That word rest is theologically dense. (laughs) It means a sense of deep belonging and security, the unshakable assurance that a person or people feel in the presence of God even when enemies threaten. That's rest. Verse nine, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Now Naomi had sealed her prayer with the thought that this would be a parting kiss, but I suspect she was not prepared for the depth of tears that flowed and the young widow's insistence on returning to Bethlehem with their mother-in-law, rather than returning to their own mothers in Moab. Verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Now one can see from the dialogue that as the stakes become higher and the emotions get more intense, the women are drawing closer. Three times, Naomi names them my daughters, not daughters-in-law, which makes the thought of separation even more painful. So Naomi counters her daughters-in-law's suggestion with a powerful reminder that she's in absolutely no position to provide husbands that she believes are essential for their well-being as her daughters. Under Israelite law, when a man a married man died childless, it was his brother or a relative was expected to marry the widow and use their seed to preserve the deceased relative's name and inheritance. And at her age, that possibility is out of the question. It's impossible. And to put an end to this discussion, Naomi gives voice to how she really feels. Blaming God in shocking terms, for all that has transpired against her. know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly more bitter for me than you, because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Catherine Sackenfeld notes that and this is the third reference to the Lord in the story, all of which come from Naomi. First, Naomi heard that the Lord had provided bread. Then she asked that the Lord bless Ruth and Orpah. Now she says that the Lord's hand has gone out against her. God can provide for peoples and for individual persons, but in Naomi's view, God does not care for her. Have you ever felt that way? You pray for others and it happens, but when it comes to you, no. You know, after we lost two children, you know, we prayed, Lord, save them, and he didn't. And then every single young pastor on the pastoral staff had a healthy child, and answered their prayers. And it was really hard for Emily to believe that God answers her prayers. Carol and Jane's... Uh, <laughs> um, says this is her Job moment. Naomi is the female Job. In her view, God hasn't cared for her. That's not the narrator's view, but it's her perception. In this moment, when she can no longer stifle the feelings and what these sufferings imply about God, the dam has been building up so long and she's been holding it back and like a tidal wave of anger it now just bursts open and she says exactly what she feels. That is absolutely necessary to heal. And I commend her for that. You cannot heal without lament, honest lament. Now, unlike Job, she is not portrayed as being interested in why the calamity is struck. Her spirit has been crushed even beyond the point of prayer. Yet as events unfold by the end of the story, the prayer that is not uttered because it could not even be imagined, will nevertheless receive its answer. That's God's Hesed love. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has turned back to her people and and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So after the third exchange, Orpah follows Naomi's voice, kisses her goodbye, and goes back to her family. This is a crossroads, and we all come to crossroads in our lives. My big one was when I went to Stanford to be a stockbroker, and then I told my parents I want to intern at this church and raise my own support and beg for money. And my dad sat me down and he gave me very good advice. He said, look, my dad never spoke, so this is a big deal. He said, look, if you want to be like Billy Graham, that's okay. Go to Harvard Business School, go to Stanford, get your master's degree, then you can be like Billy Graham. Great advice. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't take any more of his money. And Naomi's advice is very good. But like Naomi's son's, Orpah's name, back of the neck, bears witness to her destiny as she turns her back to her mother-in-law and returns to her community. By contrast, Ruth cleaves, that's the Hebrew word davak. That comes out of the context of marriage where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And that word here signals that Ruth is committed to leaving father and mother to follow Naomi. Ruth clung to her. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but sometimes when people do that with you, it gets a a little bit, you feel uncomfortable because it's not reciprocated. So Naomi avoids addressing its significance by turning Ruth's Ruth's attention to her sister-in-law, Orpah, and with a touch of peer pressure, exhorts her to follow her example. Realizing that the issue of family and marriage didn't make any impact on Ruth, she addresses the issue of religion and community. Orpah returned to her people, you're a Moabite, and to her gods, Now that was a mistake on her part. In Moab, worship a patron deity is Chemosh, which is involved in child sacrifice. Those words were the match that set a fire ablaze in Ruth's soul bringing the issue into razor sharp focus. This choice is not about geography, marriage, family loyalty, it's about God. And despite Naomi's persistent and unremitting resolve to go it alone, she is no match for Ruth and the extraordinary oath that will bind her to Naomi with God as her witness and judge. And here come those famous verses. But I have to retranslate the first line. <laughs> Stop afflicting me. It's really what she's saying. Naomi's insistence were like barbs in her soul. And so there's a lot of tension in these words. Stop afflicting me to leave you or to return from following you. Why don't we read this together? For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Whew, that's tear-jerking. You can see in the outline She starts by saying she makes the same commitment that Abraham made. Abraham was told to leave mother and father and country. The difference is Abraham had a vision of a promised land and all the encouragement of an oracle. Ruth has nothing, no hope, and she makes that same commitment. I think her faith's greater than Abraham at this point. And then you'll notice She's gonna make this journey, so wherever she's gonna go, she's gonna go along the way, and then when you go, you stop at a lodge overnight, and then you cross the border, and then you're with the people of Israel, and those people are gonna be your people, and then you come to the sanctuary, and there's God. And then she converts, and she uses the biblical language of I am, the covenant-making God, she's got all the theology right, And then she takes an irrevocable oath, seals it with God as her witness that her loyalty to Naomi is gonna go beyond the trajectory of her life and death. She's gonna be buried with her. So facing the same realities at Orpah, Ruth, just by faith, throws herself through the veil of sight and clings to Naomi. So what would you have done? You know, often when you come to the Gospels, Jesus asks people to follow him, and, well, let me bury my mother first, or let me buy this field. In the last half of these Gospels, Jesus says, um, if you want to follow me, you're going to the cross. However, anyone that gives up mother and father and houses for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in this life, and the age to come eternal life. Robert Alter has demonstrated that in biblical narrative, the first piece of dialogue assigned to a character often defines their distinctive character and in Ruth's case, it suggests she is one remarkable person. <laughs> Outstanding character. And I think it also speaks volumes about Naomi because her life was Ruth's only exposure to the God of the Hebrews. And living in a patriarchal world, Naomi didn't have a choice about going to Moab. If Olymelech wants to do it, you're going nor could she prevent her sons from marrying Moabite women. I'm sure she objected inside. But once they did it, you know what she chose to do? She chose to love them. If you're gonna marry my son, I'm gonna love you. Pagan or not. We get her at her worst when the book opens. But for 10 years in Moab, She must have been a stellar model of faith, so much so that Ruth chooses her God as she stands at the fork of the road. With Naomi, her only Bible, Ruth discovered the pearl of great price and she leaves everything behind for it. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The Hebrew really says she shut up. She ceased talking, there's nothing she could say. Ellen Davis speculates, well, was she moved beyond words? Or was she perplexed by this woman's tenacity? Or was she frustrated and frightened because feeling the burden of this young life, they're now inextricably bound on her own? And is she terrified taking a Moabite back into the land? Narrative loves ambiguity, and if you don't like ambiguity, don't read the Bible. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was in a stir because of them. And the women said, oh my gosh, is this Naomi? So upon arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi has so aged from her years of bitter distress, that the sight of her throws the women of the village into a state of shock and confusion. And as she gets closer, they wonder, is this really, can this really be Naomi? And after all she's been through, the very sound of her name, pleasantness, my pleasantness, is repulsive to her. In another Job moment, Naomi throws the gauntlet down and redefines who she has become and who is to blame for her transformation. Do not call me Naomi, pleasantness. Call me bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Woof. that's harsh. But you know what? It's based on a very high view of God's sovereignty, that's the name Almighty, and covenant responsibility, that's the name I am Lord. Furthermore, it's not unprecedented. You ever read Jeremiah? (laughs) Or how about Moses and Elijah? When they ask God, why has he brought evil, Moses says to this people, and Elijah says, why have you brought evil upon this widow? Again, Sackenfeld notes, it is significant, however, that both Moses and Elijah are directly addressing God in these passages and trying to reverse the circumstances while Naomi neither addresses God nor expects any chance of a reversal. This may be due to the fact that Naomi, unlike Moses and Elijah, the paradigmic prophets of the Lord, has never been addressed by God nor been called by God to some great task. So like Ruth, who follows in the footsteps of Abraham without promise of a glorious future, Naomi has to endure hardship and uncertainty without the benefit of God's underwriting and endorsing her affairs. Why do women have it so much tougher? Amazing. Naomi's words, the Lord has brought me back to empty, must have been heartbreaking for the women of Bethlehem to hear. And I'm sure they gathered around her, comforted her. In the meanwhile, here's Ruth. How painful were those words to her? She stands next to her, unrecognized, naked, and alone, crumpled up in the wastebasket, marked empty. In defense of Naomi, inconsolable grief and despair can swallow us in self pity and blind us to God's grace. An honest lament is the pathway to healing. The good news is that Hesed love doesn't depend upon repayment or acknowledgement. Naomi may not recognize Ruth, but God does. She carried out a successful rescue mission and she's gonna become a catalyst for new levels of godliness and justice in the community and she will not lose her reward. I love Psalm 15 and I'm gonna change the pronouns for Ruth's benefit. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent She who swears to her own hurt and does not change. She who swears to her own hurt and does not change. She who does these things will never be shaken. What a woman. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the beginning of the barley harvest confirms the word Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord remembered his people and gave them bread and it foreshadows Ruth's destined fertility. So my friends, where is the kingdom found on earth in an age of moral deterioration, political disaster, violent war? Well, for Israel, it came in a most unlikely place, Moab through the lives of two widows caught up in God's Hesed love. As Ellen Davis affirms, the real test of covenant relationship is how one vulnerable person treats another who is likewise vulnerable. Ruth's practice of Hesed moves others into incalculable risk of covenant relationship. Receive now this benediction. May the grace of Christ which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that unites us in one body. Make us eager to obey the will of God, to show Hesed love to all we meet, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.